0: Hello and welcome to This Speech Life, a weekly audio course and podcast from SpeechTherapyPD.com, exploring all things related to school-based SLP practice. I'm your host, Caitlin Lopez, MSCCC SLP, a pediatric SLP with 10 years experience in the school setting. Each week, we will cover three need-to-know aspects of that episode topic, two resources related to the topic, and one actionable strategy for tomorrow. Hello, everyone, and welcome to today's episode of This Speech Life. I am Caitlin Lopez, a school-based SLP in Southern California, and I am just so excited to have Erin Forward with us today. I have been listening to her voice for quite some time now. And so it's exciting to me to be able to chat with her. We are going to be diving into trauma-informed care. I have really resonated with a lot of what Erin has said on her podcast, First Bite, and in her different social media posts. And I just wanted to pick her brain a little bit more about what that looks like in terms of speech therapy. Before we get started, just a few housekeeping items. If you are taking the course for credit, just a reminder to log into your course portal and complete all modules, especially the module entitled quiz. And then if you don't know Erin, I am excited to introduce her to you. Erin Forward, MSP, CCC, SLP, CLC, (laughs) is a speech language pathologist and certified lactation counselor who has advanced training in pediatric feeding and swallowing disorders, early language, AAC and trauma, specifically for medically complex children. Erin holds a proficient DIR floor time provider certification and is a TBRI trained practitioner, which we will definitely get into today. She employs these skills as the lead feeding therapist and in home coordinator for a nonprofit clinic in Greenville, South Carolina. She graduated. from not the from real University USC.
1: University. Mm-hmm. Pardon me? I always joke that it's not the real USC.
0: Right. She graduated from the University of Pittsburgh with a bachelor's degree in CSD and psychology and graduated from the University of South Carolina, not USC, one <laughs> in LA with her master's in speech pathology. She's the regular co-host of First Bite, a speech therapy podcast with Michelle Dawson, MSCC, CSLP, CLC, where she shares her experiences and evidence-based practices from her time working in early intervention, home health. NICU, PICU, GI clinic, and outpatient clinic settings. For her dedication to the field, she was awarded an ASHA Distinguished Early Career Professional Certificate in 2021. And then I'm just going to report our financial and non-financial disclosures. For me, Caitlin Lopez, I am the host of the podcast, and I do receive compensation for the episode. Erin collects an annual salary from Advanced Institute for Development and Learning. She receives an honorarium for each episode of First Bite that she presents from SpeechTherapyPD.com, as well as compensation from webinars presented for SpeechTherapyPD.com. Her non-financial disclosures to report, she is a member of the American Speech Language Hearing Association and the South Carolina Speech Language Hearing Association, or Skisha. She volunteers for Skisha as the co-chair of the Baby Net Committee and member of the Legislative Affairs Committee. She is also a volunteer with Feeding Matters, LLC. You are very busy.
1: (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, it's a problem. (laughs) Between Michelle and I, it's like we see a problem and we're like, okay, what can we do to fix it? Let's make something or join something. And it keeps me very, very busy. (laughs)
0: Yes. Right. Yeah. You Mm -hmm. have been very busy. So today we're going to jump into trauma-informed care, but before we jump into it, well, it's a little bit of jumping into it. I mentioned in your bio that you are TBRI trained practitioner. Can you share a little bit more about what that is?
1: Yeah. So I have extensive training in it to be a TBRI practitioner is like $5,000 and like weeks worth of training. So I got, it was probably about like 40 or something hours. We had someone who is a TBR practitioner come in and talk to us about train us in that philosophy, which is trust-based relational intervention. It's based from Karen Purvis, who was down at TCU and created this philosophy of intervention that was really meant to support, as she would call kids that come from challenging places And however, I use it with all of my kids. And the thing that I'm very passionate about is whether it's big T trauma or little T trauma, we all experience this in some way, shape or form. And we have to go into working with another human, assuming that there's some sort of trauma. I would rather assume that trauma exists and has been experienced than assume that it hasn't. And I also think having a trauma-informed lens is really just how we should acknowledge each other. I mean, we all went through a collective trauma with COVID. So like that takes care of some sort of trauma in general. And what I like about TBRI is that it's very easily digestible and it's really helpful for parents because there's a lot of very explicit strategies that you can use. In working with kids, there's, she creates a lot of kind of steps and levels that you can very easily understand in order to implement this and know what to do next. Because I think I work with a lot of parents that are so overwhelmed and just don't know where to start. And so to give them very explicit instructions on if this happens, we do this, these are different levels. And like, I can talk more about those today, but those have been things that are really easy to implement with parents. I use floor time all the time and that like play-based childhood therapy, but that is hard for parents to start at. So the TBRI principles are usually where I'm like, okay, these are strategies you can use right away and we can move into the more gray area of floor time that it is. And it's beautiful and I love it, but something is actionable that you can do now. And TBRI has a lot of those strategies.
0: Awesome. Thank you for explaining that. For those that aren't familiar with what TBRI is, that was a really helpful explanation. So what I like to do on this speech life is just dive into a three, two, one. So what are the three things that we need to know about trauma-informed care?
1: I think that we shall be using it. Because to start off, if you're working with a child, if they're coming to see you, them and their family are already in a vulnerable place and having a child that has a disability is already traumatic in and of itself. So like acknowledge that if a child is walking through your door, there's going to be some sort of trauma. And it's important to bring these strategies into all of your sessions to build trust and safety. Because if a child doesn't feel safe, they're not going to learn. And if a child doesn't trust you, you're not going to build that relationship and you're not going to get very far from an engagement communication standpoint. One thing that I think pairs very well and will be a resource I would recommend is using the intentional relationship model, which is an OT philosophy, but I think should be taught just as well in grad school for speech pathologists, because you are your best tool in a session, parent, child, number one. But aside from that, you, you're the coach, you're working with them, you're building that relationship, but we have to understand ourselves before we can understand how we're impacting somebody else. And when we work with a child, we have to understand how we're impacting them. So one thing, a big thing I would say also about trauma-informed care is that you have to be willing to be introspective and work on yourself and what understand what your triggers are, understand your history, understand your trauma. Because once you really dive into working with a child and family and understanding where these behaviors are coming from or where their dysregulation is coming from or talking and working through some of these traumas. If you don't know, you're going to be triggered and you might not know why you're triggered. The book, The Body Keeps a Score by Dr. Porges is a hard read, but it's wonderful. And that like changed so much for me when I read that book. But I have friends that I work with that were like, that was a lot for me. Like that was a hard book to read. Cause I didn't understand that I did so many of these things because of my history, or I didn't understand like these reactions were because of things that happened to me. And that's the other big thing is like, these are things that happen to someone and acknowledging that and understanding that about yourself. Cause we have to learn to give ourselves grace and that like being trauma informed, you have to give yourself grace and understand that like, we're going to make mistakes. We're going to, Work with a child and push them a little too far. And they might have a moment where they're completely dysregulated and they get triggered. And that's okay. That's how we learn. But when you build the relationship, you can rupture and repair. Like you can repair that relationship that's going to happen. And a child needs to learn that there may be a miscommunication. Something may happen in the relationship and it can be repaired. That's valuable too. Walking on eggshells and not helping a child to grow and giving those experiences isn't helpful for them either, because they need to learn how to push through ruptures in the relationship and to push through these other, as they call in the intentional relationship model, like interpersonal aspects, like things that are just going to happen, boundaries, miscommunication. There's like, and I have them written down too, because sometimes I don't remember all of them, but um, there's a lot of things that we can't control and that's okay. But like when someone tells intimate self-disclosure, reluctance, nonverbal cues, things that we might not know right away, and that's okay. But that's why when we build the relationship, there's more trust there. And we're working together constantly. So giving yourself grace, learning to understand yourself and sitting back also, because I love speech therapists and speech language. I love them, but we want to fix everything so quickly. Like we want to have an answer. We, we see a problem and we want to fix it. And how are you going to know what to fix if you don't take the time to learn it? And I'll tell my families, your child is a full human. They are a full human. They are still growing and developing. But it would be very upsetting for me if someone thought that they were going to understand me one day of getting to know me. People will say to me, I'm very hard to read. And I'm like, yeah. I'm a complex person. You shouldn't figure me out right away. So why are we not giving our patients more time for us to just understand them before we start trying to fix them? Because if I don't understand you, how am I going to grow my relationship with you? How am I going to help you authentically and honestly function? I don't like the word functional, but participate in your world. If I just assume I know you from like one evaluation.
0: Did you know that speechtherapypd.com has weekly live and interactive webinars? We are the fastest growing CE provider. Subscribe today to get access to over 750 different courses in audio or video format.
1: Thank you. <laughs> was I was like I could talk about it. I just word vomit sometimes. No, I think
0: it's great, but I think that's so true, you know, this idea of there's so much within our system that I wish I could just demolish, right? right. <laughs> that one hour evaluation that I really appreciated you saying that because that was so validating for an experience that I had this week. I am covering a medical leave for a speech therapist at a school. And it was my first week working with this group of students. And the SDC teacher came in and she was like, What are you guys even doing? Because I was sitting there and watching a student Mm -hmm. and, you know, she wasn't in there. She was in there for maybe 10 minutes or so. And I I was interacting, but definitely taking that seat back, just watching him and trying to figure out what he was trying to communicate, how he was communicating. I appreciate that. I know that that's not necessarily, but just the last little bit that you said, I was like, okay, I
1: do know what I'm doing. You know, I struggle because I sometimes I'm the person that people watch do therapy and they're like, um, like, what are you doing? Because it doesn't look like we looked like in grad school and I'm looking at them very holistically within the context of communication or feeding or whatever I'm working on. But oftentimes when I'm know I'm doing the most, it looks like I'm doing the least Because I'm connecting. And when there's that flow and that energy, and we have this relationship, like, and we have to remember our kids are also developing and they still have to develop in that they have to go through these experiences and learn and problem solve on their own for it to really resonate and them to grow in a way that, again, is authentic and honest to who they are. And if we keep trying to fix every little thing, and always top-down work on communication, then like, it's always going to be hard. But like, if we facilitate and they learn through experiencing the world within their zone of proximal development, like that's our goal is to see how are you learning? How are you communicating? How can I challenge you within a realm that is not going to make you feel like a failure. And then you trust me enough for it to be motivating for you to continue to challenge yourself. And so I have to explain that all the time. And it's sometimes like I'll work with parents and they're like, okay, I think I got it. But like, I'm not really sure. And then when they see like their child is excited to go to therapy and their child talks about like what they did in therapy and that I think speaks in and of itself because I was sitting in the car today and I was like, again, if a child is coming to see us and a parent is coming to see us, it's not because they are thriving in communication or feeding or whatever it is. Part of our job is to put joy back in that thing that's hard for them and make it joyful and make them feel successful in it and to understand how they are communicating in ways We're just the society that we live in isn't the most set up for them. And the fact that we again spend so much time as the person that's supposed to understand them the best, making them still feel like they're not doing well enough, like kind of doesn't make sense to me. <laughs> but yeah, I feel like we're gonna go on a lot of things today. So i am
0: <laughs> <laughs> No, it's great. If any of you are tweeters, that was definitely well, maybe nobody tweets anymore. I'm not a twitter person but that was definitely a tweetable moment put joy back in i really love that that concept of putting joy back in which you shared because that's so true you know we're doing wherever our child is whether they're in school or they're at the playground or you know in line at trader joe's like they know they cannot communicate and so why are we making it more difficult for them versus making it fun and easy so i love that i am going to backtrack just a bit because i want to highlight some of the things that you said, and make sure that I got all three points. So your first is that we should be doing trauma-informed care and using a trauma-informed lens. Number two, this is what I love about you, Erin, is that you take courses in all types of different subject matter, not just speech, and that really informs your practice, and then you teach the rest of us, which I love which is also why I was like, I have to talk to her more about this. So I really loved how you brought in the intentional relationship model. That's what we should be thinking about with our trauma-informed care. Is that, am I,
1: mm-hmm.
0: okay, great. I'm catching And,
1: and to really like in the intentional relationship model, you have to be able to reflect on yourself and like understand what role you play in a session and how you're using your voice and how you're using your touch and how You are reacting to a child because I get very frustrated when I see therapists that don't realize how much that child is listening, how much that child is seeing their body language, how much that child is reacting to the way that they're responding to them, because that has so much impact. And so, realizing it's not necessarily always about what you do and what lesson plan you have, it's about who you are.
0: One hundred percent, which I think, you know, it creates that container of safety and trust, which you were talking about as well. And how when we are introspective. So let me know if I'm getting this right. Mm -hmm. So if we are introspective and we are recognizing how we are impacting that child and how we're using ourselves to impact that child or impact the space that creates that container for safety and trust, which is where the child can learn. And then when they have that, then they can rupture and repair their relationships. Mm -hmm. Okay, great. So is that kind of your three things or would you add a little bit more to that?
1: I would say, I think another big part of that is giving yourself grace because and acknowledging that There's always going to be room for you to grow and there's always going to be room for you're going to learn something from every kid you work with. And I think when you learn about the stories that we hear as speech therapists and the way that we connect and learn from our families, like it can be traumatic in and of itself for us. And so making sure that you are giving yourself grace, taking care of yourself, because I find there are times where like, I put everything into my patients and I come home and I have nothing. And there's like weeks where like, I just don't have anything to give and I feel guilty. So like also taking care of yourself and acknowledging that is really valuable because what happens if we can't fill our own cup, I think is really important as well.
0: Absolutely. So, you know, you're talking about recognizing when we are feeling that secondary trauma from Mm -hmm. stories that are shared with us. And then knowing to have those boundaries and to take care of ourselves, because if we can't connect with our students or our clients, then we're not going to be able to give that trauma informed care.
1: Mm -hmm. Okay. And doesn't leave you. Like I think at first when I was learning about it, some of the things I very much already did, some of the things I didn't already do or didn't think about doing like TBR talks about. So three of the things that TBR talks about are empowering, connecting, and correcting. Like those are the things that you work through. So empowering is something you do to support them at all times, especially if they're going to hit a point where they're dysregulated or frustrated. So like, are they hydrated? Did you have enough to eat? And certain things that are internal to that would be, let me find them so I don't butcher them because I wanna make sure that I do care and justice. But like thinking about your sensory needs. So like we have to acknowledge that children have different sensory systems and their world is different to them. And so if we're not supporting their sensory needs, they're not going to have the empowerment to be able to support themselves when a situation comes up where they're feeling dysregulated working on transitions and things. I really love that she talks about are rituals. So I make sure that when I say hi to a patient, I say it the same way every time, if I can, I mean, we all have our days again, give yourself grace, but like, I want to make sure like I get on their level. I say, hello, whether it's a touch on the arm, whatever they're comfortable with, depending on like how they respond to touch, because we all know that kids, I'm a person. I don't love deep pressure, there's only a few people I let hug me like a deep hug, but like, cause I'm very sensitive to it. So like a light touch is all I really need. That's another touch is a very strong tool, but you have to use it very carefully because our hands have so many senses in them. And then some kids have had really bad experience with touch, especially our medically complex children that it's no one's fault, but they had to go through procedures and people touch them when they didn't want to. And so how do we build back that good relationship with trust? But We work through these empowering strategies, set them up. You have rituals that you can pull back on when there is a situation where there may be escalating parents that have a good night routine, dads that have like a social game that they play with their kid. If we're having a meltdown, can I pull that social game so that I can get out of that child can get out of their lower brain and get to their higher brain and they can access some more of that cognition whereas we're in fight, flight, freeze, I'm not accessing that. And that's where the connection comes in. And she talks about engaging them. So can I use touch? Do we have a high five? Can we hold hands? Do they respond really well to eye contact? We know our neurodiverse population does not always love eye contact. That's okay. But I have a lot of kids that like, when they are with me and give me eye contact, I know that they're Really looking into my soul. A lot of the autistic kids I work with, it's like I'm not asking for eye contact, but when they give it to you, like they give it to you, and it means so much that playful interaction. So, like, she talks a lot about how if you have to correct, which is there are times where we have to correct children if it's unsafe, especially like if they're running into the parking lot, that is not safe, if they're harming themselves, that is not safe, and we have to that safety always is going to come first, but can we give them choices if they're making some sort of decision? Can I give you two options so that you feel like you have some sense of control? And control is a big theme with trauma-informed care. Like if you've experienced trauma, a lot of times the response is I want to control more of my life because I didn't have control when I experienced trauma. So how do we give them control? That can look like I'm want to they have to go to the car. They don't want to go to the car because they don't want to go to school and they're anxious about it. And it's, it's really stressful. Okay. Do you want to skip to the car? Do you want to ride on my back to the car? So I'm giving you a choice. You're still doing what the adult needs you to do, but you feel like you have some sort of control. And then even like a compromise, like, I really know that you really want to eat these Skittles right now. We have to eat our dinner first can we compromise and maybe we have them after dinner or can we compromise and we put them in the cabinet and you remember for tomorrow because we've had a lot of sugar and i know you're not going to sleep very well but doing things to engage and make them feel connected especially with our like neurodiverse population that behavior matching so like can i you know you maybe sitting under the table with your knees up to your chest and putting your head down because you're frustrated. Well, I might come and do the same thing next to you. So we're here together. Like, Hey, I see you, you understand what's happening. We're working through this together. And those are also tangible things that parents can work through. Like, Hey, remember how you and Johnny have this handshake that you do when he goes to school. Well, when Johnny's having a hard time, maybe you can do that handshake with him because it's going to bring him back to that moment that he felt connected with you. And he's going to be able to go back up here and get out of that fight flight freeze, because when you do that handshake, he feels safe. And so if you bring that handshake up again, he might go back and feel safe and we may be able to work from there because where I work right now, do you see a lot of children that have very, some aggressive behaviors that hit that self-harm. And like, you, we have to acknowledge that, like, we have to find a way so that they aren't harming themselves. And so they're not harming other people, but then we have to work to connect and empower them as well. So that that doesn't happen because what made them escalate to that point where they so dysregulated Was, did we not acknowledge their sensory needs? Did they not eat that day? Did they not sleep? So like diving deeper into a lot of those things. And I will say, having to look at that child that holistically takes a lot of work, but don't they deserve that? Like it's a lot of work to pick apart those pieces and it's gonna take time. You're not gonna figure it out right away. We're all gonna mess up and not know what their needs are and they're gonna have a meltdown and that's okay. But like, we're trying- and they can also see that.
0: Yeah, I like that. You said so many great things. But the last thing, just the idea of like, we're going to mess up. You know, I know it's been so powerful for my students when I say sorry to them, when I mess up and like, oh, an adult messed up, you know, and then also you mentioned this before about us giving ourselves grace. We have to give these kids grace, too. That was something that, you know, as you were saying those things, that's, where my head was at and how I was kind of processing that Mm -hmm. idea of, you know, we're not going to get this right away because again, what you mentioned earlier, these kids are, you know, they're full human beings Mm -hmm. and we have to give them that credit of being full human beings with their own opinions and likes and dislikes. And, you know, I have a toddler and as you're talking, you know, or like, as I'm kind of going through life with my toddler, it's like, oh my gosh, I feel like I know her and don't know her all at the same time. Mm-hmm. And she's just, you know, one to uh, like one child, you know, and that's how all of our children are, regardless of if they're children with disabilities or not, like they are fully human with their yeah. own thoughts and opinions and ways of doing things.
1: Mm-hmm. I have a weird, like, I was a child that was very outgoing and very like, I think I knew myself as a young kid. And then my parents got divorced when I was 10, which I know was the right decision. My parents are phenomenal. They handled their divorce wonderfully, but I was an old soul always. And then became a people pleaser because I just wanted everyone to be happy. And I just got, would get very stressed and very anxious and kind of lost her a little bit as weird as that sounds. And as I got older and more confident, I was like, I'm feel like finding the little girl that I would watch in videos that was singing like songs and performing for people. And I feel like very passionate about helping kids not lose that little girl that they were and making sure that they continue to know who they are and be confident in that. And especially I talk Karen Purvis is the TBRI program focuses, not really focused on medically complex children. Again, I still use it with them, but I feel like so many of the kids we work with that go through so many medical procedures and so much trauma in that way. Like my number one thing with them is like find a way for them to Say no in the easiest way possible and honor that there may be things that they have to do that we have to just make it as safe and comfortable as possible, but honoring a child's no when they couldn't say no for a while is like one of the most valuable things And then when I trust that they can say, no, I can trust that I can work through understanding them better because I can read those cues. And this is, I think couples with trauma-informed care, but I hear SLPs all the time say, well, the OT is going to get them regulated and then we can work with them. Our specialty is communication. And one of the first ways you can tell if a child is dysregulated is things that they're communicating. And it may be subtle it may be like a physiologic response babies communicate in the nicu by unfortunately de-satting and bradying and you're like please don't you know like we need to calm down here i'm not i'm not ready for this but it's an our job to read that cue and help understand why and so we play just as much a role in regulation and regulation is such an indicator of like what their responses are so making sure that we acknowledge those small cues because a response to something that like is triggering or dysregulating may be so subtle at first and we just might not have noticed it and then it gets bigger.
0: Thank you. Yeah. I, you made some really great points about just looking at these kids holistically and like, like you said, you know, they are communicating and it's not necessarily in the way that we learned in grad school that they're communicating. And I do believe that that couples with trauma-informed care. You know, that was another point that you made about kids needing control. Because when you've gone through trauma, you have lost control. And that's really a huge part of what that trauma, you know, is, right? And so I was thinking back to students that I've had in the past where I look at a student and I think, oh man, there's some big T going on right now or some big trauma going on. Mm -hmm. And a teacher who might not have the same experiences that I have is going to look at this kid and be like, oh my gosh, you know, there's such a bad kid. These are things that we hear, you know, there's such a bad kid. And in the back of my mind, I'm thinking, well, they're wanting control in this situation. You're in a power struggle. This is not, and this is why I'm such a a big proponent for child-centered therapy, even in the school setting, because when you get into that power struggle, there's no learning that happens. And of course, like we, I'm thinking of situations where kids are not safe. So I really liked how you gave them the choices. And I think that that's really helpful. You know, as I was thinking about what the kids on my caseload, and I am a big believer that every kid on my caseload, especially because of the last few years. Right. And Mm -hmm. I also, another point I'm going to backtrack just a little bit, but it all goes together. I really liked how you said that we should be thinking about every kid on our caseload, having had experienced trauma, because it is not our privilege to know what their trauma is. I think, you know, I don't want to share my trauma with everyone that I meet, and our kids shouldn't have to share their trauma with everyone they meet. I have had kids, you know, share some pretty deep things with me, and I usually just say, do you want to talk about it? And they say, no. Okay, great. You know, and and it's helpful to know sometimes, sometimes it's not, but I really like that you made that point because I think that that just honors their autonomy a little bit more that we don't expect kids to share these big moments with us if they don't want to. Anyway, back to that point of, you know, thinking back to our students and using, or our clients or patients and using these strategies, what was helpful to me when I learned them was also, you know, these are things that we're already doing. Mm -hmm. Most of us already have somewhat of a routine. I like the word ritual. That just sounds a little bit nicer and kind of, kind of a little bit more fun, but most of us have a ritual or have a routine for how we start and end our sessions and how that really does create that safety container for these kids. So I like that you brought that up and I'm hoping that Those that are listening right now are also thinking back on their practice and thinking, okay, I am doing this, you know, like, and it goes back to that piece that you said about giving ourselves grace too. Like, we do know how to do this. We do know how to connect with our clients, with our kids. That's why we're in this and why we're good at our jobs. That's the piece I think that really is that. So thank you for bringing that up. And just to make sure that I'm catching you. So empowering is... Checking in with those basic needs that kids have, you know, whether that's food, water, sleep, sensory needs, you know, working through those transitions and then those rituals and then connecting is finding ways to be playful and to engage them. And then the correcting is giving them back some sort of control. I really love that example of, okay, how are we going to, you know, get to the classroom? Are we going to walk or hop? Or are we going to hold hands, you know, whatever it is. I did that with a little girl that I was working with today at my district. We have walk-in preschool students. If they aren't in a preschool program, their parents bring them for speech and she didn't want to leave. And so I said, okay, are we going to walk to find mom? Are we going to stomp or are we going to hop? We did all Mm -hmm. (laughs) 3 Um, compromise. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. We did all three. You know, she changed her mind about halfway that. But I love that idea of giving the choices and giving back that control and giving control with things that we're comfortable with, right? We're not allowing the kid to make, you know, huge decisions. But I really like that idea of like, okay, we're going to give you back control. And then another thing that you mentioned, which I can see being really powerful, is that idea of mirroring. You know, when you're talking about the child sitting with their head in their hands, you know, and mirroring that and showing them I'm here with you. I really love that. I hadn't thought of that before. Are you looking to move up on the pay scale? You can through speechtherapypd.com in collaboration with University of the Pacific. Start earning graduate level credits today. Courses are evidence-based and practical. Win-win. Check out speechtherapypd.com
1: for more information on earning graduate level credits. She, the woman who taught my course, Amy, and I'm going to find her last name. She's a professor, an OT professor at i um, Temple. She's wonderful. And she talks about how like, you know, you'll have kids lying on the floor, like kind of looking like they're losing it. And what would happen if you lied on the floor next to them? And then you're like, Hey, like. Are you kind of angry? Yeah, I get it. I hear you. Like, and there is, I see both sides of the debate of giving kids words for their feelings, because how are they going to know how to label it if no one ever gives them the label, but we don't always know how they're feeling. So I think to that, when we're lying on the floor and a child may feel angry or anxious or scared, like we don't necessarily know how they're feeling. But if you build that trust, that child is also going to understand that you're trying. And if that's not how they feel, like they can correct you too. So the kids that I work with that I do label their feelings but I'm trying to give them power and control over their emotions, I do it with kids that I know Trust me and will correct me too if that's like not really how they're feeling. Cause that is a, a hard part sometimes. I think we don't always know, but yeah, that I'm here with you. I'm and that physical, like when you're in your lower brain, I can see you physically with me. I may not hear what you're saying because I'm in fight, flight, freeze, but I can see that you're next to me. I can start to feel someone, feel someone's energy. Maybe I lightly touch your arm or something just so you know I'm here, depending on where you are in like the moment, but yeah, that physical and visual can be very helpful when they're in that fight, flight, freeze.
0: Awesome. Awesome. Thank you for that. And thank you for bringing up that point. You know, I think a lot of us therapists, like you said, we just want to fix things. And so sometimes we are a little quick to jump to labeling emotions. And I think that's a great check to put on ourselves, you know, of like, okay, maybe we don't, you know, label an emotion unless we feel like the kid is safe. So I really like that example you gave us. There is a question How do you handle a behavior such as yelling or eloping, a behavior that you can't
1: mirror? I think that's a really good question. And I think I try to also look at where a child is in kind of that escalation because mirroring is a good strategy, but when they get to a certain point, like it's not going to be a helpful strategy. And there are certain moments where I really have to get on their level and try to bring them down, whether that be one thing I love that Karen Purvis always talks about is getting on their eye level because height is a control thing. I have a lot of kids in feeding therapy that want to eat on the counter and that's because they feel more in control. And I allow it for that reason because they didn't have control over food for so long. And so That's when I try to use my voice to use touch, to use sensory strategies, because oftentimes like when they get to that point, like their body needs to feel it first before their brain does, if that makes sense. So like, I have a lot of kids where like, okay, I have to physically stop them because your body is moving and your brain isn't catching up. And so can I stop you, give you a tight squeeze of deep pressure again, Every child is going to be different. So you're going to need to know what they can tolerate from a sensory perspective. But like, if I can get on their level, give them deep pressure, get in a low tone, make my voice calm to mirror what I want their body to do so they can start to feel those things. I pull in a lot of sensory strategies at that point and just try and like slow them down for a second. Cause I feel like when that yelling happens and when I'm screaming, like I, they don't know what to do they're outside of their body. How do I bring them back into their body? And that's one thing, like my floor time training has very much taught me that like kids, like I'll have older kids that I'm working on language stuff with that. Like, sometimes we're just doing crashing and jumping and things because they need to feel their joints because like, they don't know where their body is in space and they don't know what's happening and they can't access language if that happens. So those are some of the strategies I use. Again, every kid is so different. And it's, I have some kids that yell because they're just excited. I have some kids that yell and they feel in control when they yell. So it's like, it is so, so specific. And that's when I would say, we're looking at such a holistic lens. So use your team members. If you're struggling with the kid that's doing that, like pull in the OT. I know that's not accessible for everybody. I work in in home with some of my kids so I don't have like it's rare that I with those kids have access to anybody directly but like what are some strategies you're using what are things that you think would help with their sensory system hey pediatrician you're noticing that they're not sleeping i'm worried about this like do you have anything that like you would recommend helping the parents so Being aware of all these things, but knowing you're not alone and like you have a team that wants to support this child and even noting your observations can start to get the ball rolling and help with other things.
0: Great. Thank you for that. And I think that that's a really good, your examples at the beginning of just that co-regulation and making sure that we're staying regulated. I know sometimes I'll flip off the lights if like the energy is super high, And that's helpful. So this person shared that the child was screaming about not wanting to knock before entering the speech office and that the para requested them to do so. I think after hearing that, I have like a couple more questions just in terms of what was happening before the student came to the speech room, you know, maybe how the student responds to that paraeducator. What are your thoughts, Erin?
1: Well, and also I think there are, especially looking at cognition and language, there are certain things that a child is going to understand at like a higher level and certain things that a child's going to understand at like a more basic level. So I have some kids where like, there are certain things that are just a boundary right now and we need to just learn boundaries. And then as we grow our language skills, we can piece apart why certain things are boundaries versus other things. So like I have one kid that, If a door is shut, it's a meeting like, and it depends on their language skills too. But like for this child, what we can understand is like, they're having a meeting, they're having a meeting, they're having a meeting. We can't go in this door because that's what boundary we have established. He's learned recently, like certain doors he's allowed in if he knocks. So, but it took, we had to first establish that boundary of if a door is shut, we don't go in it. And so sometimes having like not a ritual, but like a script can be helpful. I like, and I'm going to find some of the ones that, and it's helpful to use the same scripts. Like if every person uses the same script. So in TBRI, they call them life value terms. So it's the shared language that everybody uses. So something like stick together. So if a child's running away or wants to go somewhere fast, like, okay, let's stick together. And parent uses that teacher uses that. Everybody uses that. Some other ones that she uses are talking about being gentle and kind, accepting the no. So when you have to tell a child, no, communicating with them, like, okay, sometimes we have to accept the no, like this is how we're going to work through. And so using scripts or making things very consistent can be helpful because then they don't have to think as much about it. So, oh, when they said, stick together. I know I have to be next to them. I don't have to pull from other parts of my brain. This is the thing that when I hear this, I go near the person I'm with. When I hear accept the no, every time that's been said to me, it's been something I really want, but it's been okay afterwards. And Karen Purvis also talks a lot about giving a lot of yeses. So we have to acknowledge how many times we're saying no to a kid on a daily basis, because that can be really frustrating. So giving as many yeses as you can during the day makes the no easier later on. So like, I sometimes feel like I didn't realize how many times I was saying no in a session and for what reason, but let's think about how frustrating it would be if you were at work and every time you asked someone if you could do something or to do something, they kept telling you no, like I would be really frustrated and probably yelling eventually. So did that child have a bunch of no's before he got to the door? I don't know. Maybe he did. Was it a loud sensory experience just to walk through the hallway and he just needed to get through because it was just too much? It could have just been that he was frustrated because he wanted to knock on the door and he didn't. And that's okay. You're going to have those moments, but that's when using these strategies of building the connection, having the rituals, all of these can help make that easier. And again, there are going to be some times where it's just not going to work and they're in yell, and it's going to be okay.
0: Absolutely. Like, you know, you talked about that kind of uh, towards the beginning of like, you know, these are strategies that are helpful, but we are working with like living, breathing, fully human mm-hmm. people that are still going to do their own thing, just like, you know, adults are. So I really love all the different things that you just gave us. And that shared language, I think, is so helpful that we can use with all of our students. You know, that's kind of what helps create the classroom culture. And so I just I really love that. And, you know, working with your team members to make sure team members, parents to make sure that we're all using that shared language. So I'm going to jump to our next question. What resources do you have for those of us that want to learn a little bit more about trauma-informed care?
1: The TBRI website has a lot of really good resources and also videos to show like what those principles look like. So I've pulled like sometimes when I'm explaining things to parents, I will pull from their website to show them direct videos of Karen Purvis like um Working with a child, getting on their level, explaining things to them, she even, which I think is really, we don't think about like when she works with a child sometimes and they're really having a hard time, she will get them in a similar position, like when you're in the womb, because it just has this feeling of safety and security. And unfortunately for a lot of children that we work with that come from hard places, they didn't have a lot of that feeling safety, even in the womb, a lot of kids that we work with. And so bringing them back there and really back to that space can bridge a feeling of security. And so I really like to pull um, from her resources. I really, really love the book, The Body Keeps the Score. Like I said, it's a hard read and it's one that you have to be prepared to kind of be reflective the polyvagal theory is also a really, really great book. We all know about the vagus nerve from like a swallow from a cranial nerve swallowing standpoint, but to realize the impact that the vagus nerve has on like our entire body and how we function is wonderful. And this stuff is not anything like we learn in grad school because I feel like a speech pathologist, it's very a lot of things were very structured and very, you make a lesson plan and you use these stimuli and you do all of this. And this is, but we're dealing with humans and we just have to pull from what we know and when we know better, do better and use our mentors and use our resources because every child is different and they deserve to be treated as such. And as you see more patients and work with more patients, like you just pull from all of those things, but having all those in your back pocket to better understand the why can also help you not get as burnout too, and see more value in it as well. I think the more I learn, the more I realize I can do so much with so little, but I also don't have as much of an impact as I feel like, if that makes sense. Like, there's these tiny things that can make such a big difference. But when you look at a child holistically and you look at treatment holistically, you're also like, wow, there's so many other things that are impacting this communication or this feeding that like, I'm going to do what I can, but like, I only have so much control myself.
0: Absolutely. And especially when you think about how little Kids are with us, right? I mean, how do we actually make an impact in that little bit of time, which I think is why some of the strategies that you've shared with us today and teaching families about those strategies or we're teaching you know, fellow educators about those strategies, I think that's really helpful. So those of you, just to recap, Erin shared The Body Keeps the Score by Bessel van der Kolk. That that's the book, right? Yes. Okay. And then that is a phenomenal book, like she said. It's a pretty yes. Heavy I flipped
1: Orges and Vander. I'm sorry, I flipped the authors of those two books. Thank you for that's coming.
0: okay. I just wanted. I was like, I yep. think this yep. is the one she's talking yep. about. Yep. <laughs> okay, great. So yeah, Bessel Van der Kolk wrote The Body Keeps the Score, and then the second resource or the first resource that Erin shared with us is the TBRI website with Karen Purvis. She also has written a book too. So definitely check those things out. And, you know, Erin, I really, I think that's probably why I just resonate with so much of your content is because I fully agree with you in terms of, you know, using our connection as our greatest gift that we can give students or our patients. And we hear it all the time, but then to actually lean into it, I think is a different thing. I know, you know, we don't care your students or your children don't care what you have to teach them until they know how much you care. Mm -hmm. You know, that's a phrase that we hear all the time. One of my principals used to always say, you got to reach them to teach them. You know, what are you doing in your classroom to reach them? And I really appreciate how you've brought this to the speech perspective, but also brought in outside resources and strategies to help us really conceptualize what that means. You know, Connecting with a child doesn't just mean like, oh, cool, we both like soccer. Mm -hmm. Connecting with a child is so much deeper than that. And so I really appreciate the ways that you've shared about observing children and responding to children rather than reacting to children. I think that that's really huge and the different examples that you've shared for us today. So thank you for that. We also had a comment. Bethany says that she agrees. Fantastic. All right. So Erin, what is one actionable strategy that we can start doing tomorrow?
1: My favorite is to think about how you say hi and bye to your kids, because that's what they start their session with. And that's what they leave your session with. And that consistency also, you know, there's kids that we work with that like, have had people in their life that were in their life and then them weren't and that don't know or have that understanding of time. And then to know like, okay, she said bye this way, this day. Like I know that I'm going to see her again. I know that like that's going to help the routine. And I think to take a step back in your sessions. Like I would just two minutes is going to feel like a very long time, but like set a timer for two minutes and just watch and see what happens. Because we're so quick to jump in, and there's so much value in interpreting and understanding and watching how they look at something and watching how they respond to that sound and watching how they put their toys on the ground and for what reason they put their toys on the ground. Like if they start to make more sounds when you're not near them, or there's a lot to that. So, two minutes, it will feel like forever, but. We need to learn to be a little more quiet, (laughs) which is hard because this is what we do, but.
0: Yeah, I love that. So think about setting up a ritual for saying hello and for saying goodbye if we haven't already done that and then taking that time to observe our students. I really love that, especially when it comes to, to observing, you know, those of us that are in the school setting and we work with groups of students, you know, observing how they interact with each other too, because that might be vastly different than how they interact with us, you know, and observing how they interact around the school campus, which is something that is a gift that we have. I've worked in both clinic and school side, and that's something that I've really, I missed when I was in the clinic was I only got to see them in one setting versus at the school. I felt like in the clinic, I did eventually get to know my kids well, but I felt like it took way more time than at the school setting because I could observe them at lunch. I could observe them when they got to school. I could observe them at recess. I could observe them in their classroom. You know, there were so many more settings and definitely sitting back and reflecting on what you're seeing. I know at first, when I was given that concept of, okay, what are you doing in your observations? It was hard at first, you know, I'm thinking that I'm just watching the student, but, you know, we're watching the other students. We're watching the teacher. We're watching what the feel of the classroom is, how often the teacher says something positive versus something negative, you know, it's not just that student. So what I think was helpful for me with that observation was, figuring out how many questions I could ask about this situation for myself. Do you have any tips that you could give us for those of us that are kind of building
1: our observation skills? I think that, and and one thing that I will say is we have this beautiful gift of understanding communication at a level that other people don't. And so a big part of our job is to interpret what that communication is and to be their voice, because not everyone else understands it in that same way. And so observing and taking that step back allows us to read those cues and to understand their communication even more because the kids that we work with necessary aren't developing language in the typical way. And so think of it, I mean, we take language samples all the time, but this is more of An overall communication behavior sample that we're observing. And I have so many people that always ask me all the time, like, how do you take data on this? How is this like, like, how are you measuring this? And genuinely, I feel some of it. Like, genuinely, I will sit there and feel and trust and just go with my gut and my instinct because we know and feel so much more than we think. And there's energy in that. Um, Kim Bartel is an OT who I have met. She is wonderful. She's brilliant. She's amazing. She had us do an exercise where we had to close our eyes and put our hands like my hands were up here, the other person's hands were here, and try to move the way that the other person's hand did with their eyes closed. And if you just let go of a lot of things, like it works because we're putting energy out there, and so. Sometimes, like, I can't say, measure this, look at this, figure this out. Like, sometimes we just have to feel it a little bit and trust our gut, but we have that knowledge in there as well. And so I get so frustrated that we have to justify our services so much because we have so much value as a clinician. And once you get past that, you can do so much more. But I get it. There's things you need for the school, there's Common Core, there's insurance, there's all of it. But at the end of the day, again, this is still a human and we went to grad school. We know our stuff. Like we need to get to a point where we like, don't feel like we have to justify this as much, but I get it.
0: <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I think, you know, going back to that, that idea of like that practice that you had to do with Kim Martell, it reminded me of like, I think this was honestly the most I'm trying to think of what the word is that I'm trying to think of, like the thing in my practice that totally changed everything. I was a relatively newer clinician. And I just remember I had this group of boys that were like bouncing off the walls and I, all of my teacher tricks were not working. And I thought, okay, let me just take a minute. I took a deep breath and I thought, oh my gosh, what did I just do? I just took a deep breath. How do I get these kids to breathe? You know, and I thought, okay, what calms me down? Yoga. And so, but of course, like if you've ever t- told a kid to take a deep breath, or if you've ever told a kid to do something and they're up here, it's people who are watching, who are listening, don't know what I'm doing. You know, when they're like swinging from the rafters, basically, like if you've ever told a t- kid to take a deep breath, they're just going to start hyperventilating. You know, or if you tell them to like sit down or be still, like you're not going to get that. And so, Looking back now, I'm like, oh yeah, I've learned all of these things from my OT, but it's that intuition that we have as human beings that I think what you're saying, Erin, is just lean into that. I thought, okay, I need to get these kids grounded. They need to feel the ground beneath their feet. So I had them take elephant steps. I was like, all right, I want to see who can walk like the loudest elephant to get them to stomp their feet on the ground. And we just moved around the table. And then after I could feel them dropping down, I was like, okay, let me see. Who can take the longest breath while lifting your arms up as high as they will go? You know, you have to make it a competition with boys Mm -hmm. sometimes, (laughs) at least this particular group of boys. Like I knew them, I knew that this was going to work. And then once they started to come down, then we did, you know, like tree pose or something that looked fun, but still difficult and challenged them. And then they were able to sit and we had the best session. I kept them a little bit longer. I had the room in my schedule. You know, it it was like the perfect experiment and time for me to be able to do that. And it changed everything for me. And at that point, I was like, okay, I do know what I'm doing. Even though I didn't learn those strategies in grad school, I didn't see them from a clinical instructor. You know, I didn't see it from my CF supervisor. And I really hope that the SLPs that are listening Are going to trust themselves a little bit more and lean into their own intuition. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I agree with you. I think we just need to. I wish there was a way, and I'm sure there is. If those of us who are not so spent on therapy and all the things we're doing, but if we could figure out a way to just burn the system.
1: (laughs) Yeah, that's the other thing. Mm -hmm. I had an (laughs) OT who, though, you'd be surprised. Like I had an OT who mentored me who said that she got a goal covered that was like, we'll show joy in the session, like, I think push the envelope a little bit and see what happens, you know, ask for
0: forgiveness. (laughs) Absolutely. Absolutely. The clinic that I'm working at, I recently had a report sent back to me. These are not speech goals. So like, okay, Mm. we'll keep working. You know, they wanted to send them to behavioral support, but it's like, this is within our scope of practice, but you know, yep. eventually, you know, like you said, just keep pushing the envelope and keep adding. Advocating in our small ways, and hopefully, we can burn this.
1: It's all the time that everyone has, but you know. <laughs>
0: <laughs> all right, Erin. So let's just recap the three, two, one quickly. So, the three things that we need to know about trauma informed care when it comes to speech therapy
1: we should be doing it. Boy, there, I'm going to lose them. be the introspective, and the introspective. So, the intentional relationship model, like utilize that. And also, Give yourself grace and know that we're all working together. This is a relationship and there's value and authenticity in that as well. I would recommend the TBRI website, like looking there for resources. And then the body keeps the score as a read, a deep, dense read. And A tip to use either working on your hello and goodbye or sitting back for two minutes and just observing and understanding, because that's the other thing. I think it's looking at it as I'm working to understand so I can better inform my practice instead of just observing, because I think that word observing can seem, I don't think it is, but I think people can feel like it seems a little lazy. We're informing and understanding.
0: I love it. And I also love that you switched it from observing to understanding because observing, it does like, that is a very passive word, right? I'm just sitting here and observing, but if I'm seeking to understand, then I'm really thinking critically about what's happening in front of me. So I appreciate that word switch. All right, Erin, what are ways that people can
1: follow you, know what you're up to, learn more from you? Michelle and I both respond to messages on the first by Instagram. I'm also, I have my own Instagram, aaronforward.slp or aaron.forward.slp, one of those, you'll find me. And if anyone has a question they want to email me, you can email me at erin.forward.slp at gmail. And I can put it in here. If you have any questions, I think we all have to support each other and be a resource and anyone that's trying and working to be more trauma-informed to Utilize child led play based therapy. Like, I'm all for it and we'll send you all the resources you want and all the people because I think everybody should be doing it to some extent.
0: Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, thank you so much, Erin, for you,
1: it
0: went by yeah. so fast. <laughs> yeah, it did, right? It did. It went by so fast. Thank you so much just for sharing your expertise and really more importantly, your passion and compassion for the children you work with and the families you work with. And I am feeling so inspired and ready to dive into tomorrow. And I hope all of you are as well. So thank you so much, Erin. And we hope to see you all back here soon. Bye. Thanks for joining us at This Speech Life. Remember to go to speechtherapypd.com to learn more about earning ASHA CEUs. We appreciate your positive reviews and support and would love for you to write a quick review and subscribe.